Greetings, beloved, and welcome to another edition of Modern Day Truth Ministries. I hope you and your families and those near and dear to your heart have had a blessed day of the resurrection. Uh, I'm coming to you today with a heavy topic on my heart, and as I scroll through Twitter and Facebook, I see uh, the church, and I can't but help but be dismayed by what I see. Even on a day like today, one of thankfulness, one where we honor the power of the resurrection, where we can celebrate celebrate the truth and fullness of the gospel. Oh, so many Americans can't seem to leave the politics aside. The bashing, the vitriol, as we're locked down during this crisis, is at an all-time high, and I see pundits continuing to stoke the flames within the church, uh, arguing ex- inflammatory rhetoric, all in the name of God. I see so many soaking the flames with the church buildings being closed, calling on Christians to be angry, and upset. And the thing that I have found is just like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, these same pundits do not understand. They understand the where and the how, but they do not understand the why. You see, the gospel has not stopped. The preaching of the good news of the gospel has not stopped. Closed closed buildings do not mean the power of God is suddenly rendered diminished. The God we serve is not so weak that a closed building renders the outpouring of his spirit helpless. Friends, the power of God is here and the power of Jesus' name is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It can be said that in the midst of this crisis, a yearning for the gospel message has grown exponentially. Whether you go to a local store and view the Bible section a little bit emptier than normal, whether you look at the attendance of online streams and podcasts and uh, live streams of services, viewership has grown exponentially. God does not demand that we figure out how. He asks that we trust him to and simply follow his command. Friends, I feel a heavy subject on my heart that I feel a need to discuss. And I'm sure that in this message, I'm going to get some backlash and I'm going to step on some toes, but so be it. I have an urging, a moving, a trembling in my spirit. I come to you led by the Spirit of God, and I come to you in a spirit of holy boldness, just like Elijah and Paul did during the days in which they lived. The church in the United States is in trouble. The United States as a country is in trouble. In the midst of this COVID-19 crisis, I've learned that politics is set down for nothing and no one. I can't help but sit here on this Resurrection Sunday watching the political potshots at one another, some in the name of Christ, and it has led me to a conclusion. The United States has fallen so far into a trap that it cannot figure out how to get itself out of. The United States and the church within has fell into full-blown political idolatry.
As I was meditating on Acts 17, Paul's speech to the Athenians, I could not help but believe this is a speech for us in the present day. So many in this country bemoan the division and the strife in this country, yet the status quo remains the same. The division exists even within the church because politics has become an idol. Simply put, we allow politics to control the narrative. You see in Acts 17, Paul is astounded by the idolatry of the people of Athens. But I have no doubt that if Paul was to walk through the United States or turn on cable news or turn on the radio or hop on Twitter or Facebook, he would be astounded by our own political idolatry, even by those in the church. Friends, this is a very scary idea. It is. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You see, the politicians in this country stoke our fears. Cable news and talk radio continue to stoke the flames. And we continue to chase the idol of our worship. Yes, we have a great many idols in this country, but the biggest and the baddest, the most destructive idol, is the idol of partisan politics. You see, we have a church have become so politically driven that we have lost our way. Instead of following the command of Christ in the Great Commission, instead of making disciples, excuse me, we seek to make Democrats or Republicans. We've forsaken our call, we've forsaken the truth of God's word for a little for a little political recognition and expediency among the elected. I will preface this as no, I am not saying do not vote or don't be political, but what I'm saying is the problem exists in this country, and a problem exists within the church. And that problem is because politics has become the object of mass worship. It has become what the idols of Athens were of that day. It has become the idol of our day. If you would, turn with me to Acts, the 17th chapter. And we're going to look at verses 16 through 34. This is Acts, the 17th chapter, verses 16 through 34. And background on this, Paul has fled to Athens. And Athens is the center of Greek culture. It's almost the center of Gentile culture. The first thing I'd like to address in the passage is the situation. Paul came to Athens after being forced to flee Thessalonica and Berea. In the previous verses, found in verse 1 through 15, Athens was the heart of Greek culture and thought, renowned for its art and philosophy. Some of the most famous philosophers, the founders of two dominant philosophies. Epicurus and Epicureanism, and Zeno and Stoicism had taught in Athens. 
Athens was also the home of almost every man-made god in existence. Uh, The pagan writer Petronius once said it is easier to find a god in Athens than a man. In fact, it was the Athenian idolatry that drove Paul to preach the gospel in Athens. Such idolatry offended him to the core, as we see in verse 16. And verse 16 reads, Now while while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Paul feels an urging and a provoking in his spirit when he sees a city that is in full-blown idolatry. He is so troubled by what he sees that he cannot help but preach the gospel. True to form, the apostle finds himself at the synagogue reasoning the scriptures if we look at verse 17. And verse 17 reads, Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean Stoke philosophers heard Paul's message in the marketplace and they brought him to Areopagus on Mars Hill before some of the astute philosophers in Athens. They had no interest in the message of the gospel. Paul was simply a novelty to them, just like he is to many today. They had no interest in the message of the gospel. He was simply just a novelty and attraction. They had set him in the midst as a specimen that would amuse their interest in telling or hearing something new. And we see that in verse 21. This is setting the stage for Paul's direct message, his direct confrontation with a godless culture entrenched in idolatry. Paul gives us the method in verses 22 through 34 on how we can change the culture that we are in today. The message of the gospel is life-changing and culture-changing. The call that we have individually as followers of Christ is to be a culture changer. The problem that we have found ourselves in as a church in this country is we have allowed the culture and the politics to change the church instead of the church influencing either one of them in this post-modern society. It is Paul who gives us this method on how we can truly change the culture and fix the problems of this present day. Because whether we want to admit it or not, we are Athens. There are so many idols, so many false gods that are worshipped, politics, sports, entertainment, and many false religions, too many to count. We cannot expect change if we leave the status quo the same, brothers and sisters. If we are going to confront this postmodern culture we are in, in this day and age, this age of trail mixed theology for social, political, and economic expediency, we have to have a plan. Paul spoke his message to an indifferent and arrogant audience, like many to whom you and I speak with today. As we look at how Paul preached to the philosophers, you'll see three essential elements of an effective message to confront our current postmodern, politically idolatrous culture with truth. 
First, we must remind people, believers and non-believers, that God is. God exists. When Moses was in Exodus and when he had left Egypt and when the burning bush speaks to him, he says, who shall I tell set me? And the burning bush answered, Yahweh himself says, I am that I am. The first point is we have to remind that God is. God exists. The God of the Bible is very real. I want to say that Paul's opening line is not how many of us would begin a sermon or an evangelistic series or an outreach during the time that we live in. And this opening line is found in verse 22 and ends with verse 23. Then Paul stood in the midst of Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship. I even found an altar with an inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. We have to keep in mind the beginning of this passage. These idols infuriated Paul so much, all he could do was preach. He essentially is saying here, guys, you are so ignorant. It's okay, though, because I'm going to give you some truth. Imagine starting a sermon or discussion with any group of people that way. Secondly, people read that he says, in all things, you are very religious. People automatically assume Paul is commending them on this. Well, to be frank, he's not. Remember, there is a vast amount of idols. This both astounded Paul and infuriated Paul. Friends, I am here today to argue that we are indeed Athens. We are very religious in all things. We have politicians that say Merry Christmas and Happy Easter. We talk about one nation under God. We constantly chirp about the country we run as being based on Judeo-Christian beliefs. Our money says in God we trust. In short, we too are very religious. And just like the great apostle, I am not being complimentary when I say that. The apostle begins here, he states the obvious. He stated that with a given nature, he says this is the most obvious thing in the world. All men are innately religious. It is natural to be religious. All men are created to be worshipers. The thing is, they either worship God or they worship something else. But everyone worships something. The Athenians were no different, and we today are no difference. You see, externally, on the outside, God has given witness about himself through what he has created. Psalms 19.1 tells us the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Internally, according to Romans 1.19, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. They have an innate sense of the true God of the Bible. His standards are written on their heart and their conscience holds them accountable, according to Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. But because they sin, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1, 18. They willfully reject what they know to be true and choose instead to worship in ignorance. 
They say the truth is a hard pill to swallow, and just as it was hard for the Athenians to accept this and to change this, we have to understand this as well. We can either accept what we know to be true, what is ingrained in us innately, or we continue or we can continue to wallow in willful and choiceful ignorance. Secondly, we must just like Paul, preach and teach who God is. We cannot rely on television, radio, or social media. We have to not only open and study from our own Bible, but if we're going to preach and teach, it is a must that we only be teaching the God of the Bible, nothing less and nothing more. We've already explained, yes, the God of the Bible exists, but it is now paramount we show who he is. This is found in verses 24 through 29. And the apostle says during this speech to the Athenians, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from them blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. Verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And verse 29, therefore, we are the offspring of God. We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something that is shaped by art and man's devising. This is Paul's lesson to those he deemed as spiritually ignorant. When he speaks to them about the unknown God, the thing is, the people of Athens, they knew of the one true God. They had knowledge of his existence, hence how they had the altar inscribed, the unknown God. However, they did not know him on a personal, intimate level. I will say this many times when you hear me preach, and probably thousands of times in my lifetime, but there is a very distinct difference between knowing of God and knowing God. The implications are very different. To know of God is to have second-hand knowledge. To know God is to have first-hand knowledge through a personal, intimate relationship with him. Just like the Athenians, we in this country and many within the church, we know of God. But we are not living in such a way that displays we know him on an intimate, personal level. That personal, intimate level implicates relationship. The message of the gospel does not call us to religion. It calls us to relationship. Just like the Athenians, we are very religious, but we have to make that transition to be as Paul and have that personal relationship. It's ironic that Paul is teaching the ABCs and 123s of theology to those who were known worldwide as the supreme intellectuals of that day. Athens was the intellectual epicenter of the world. Aristotle and Socrates debated in Athens. But it is Paul the great apostle that gives them their ABCs and 123s, the very basic essence of theology. It proves 
the truth of 1 Corinthians one twenty five when it says the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, there are five things that Paul hits home in his speech to the Athenians. These five things, ignorant, the ignorant, rebellious nature of man must know about the unknown God or the God of the Bible, Yahweh Elohim. The first being is found in verse 24. God is the creator. He made the world and all things in it. In Paul's day and ours, the truth makes no room for men's opinion regarding origins. Now, I love the second part of verse 24. God is ruler. And verse 24 continues. He is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not dwell in temples made with hands. It logically follows that if God is the creator, he is also the rightful ruler of what he created. And if he is the creator and ruler, he does not live in what his creatures have made. This is so applicable given the current situation of COVID-19. I have a feeling that there's some more toes that are out here that I'm about to step on. But so be it. So much has been made by church of, about church's social distancing. I talked about this earlier, but Paul needs us to understand something. So much of, well, we should be holding church because A, B, C, and D are open. This is religious oppression and so on and so forth in, in the language of inflammatory American politics. The First Amendment says, and so on and so forth, God in his sovereign nature, brothers and sisters, is not bound to buildings made by men. I need you to understand this. If we are to believe the Bible from cover to cover, if we believe God created heaven and earth, if we believe that he raised Jesus from the dead, how on God's green earth can we remotely allow ourselves to even insinuate the closing of a building hinders true worship or the spread of the gospel message? God is not bound to the work of our hands. In his omnipresence, he is anywhere and everywhere. He is not simply bound to the church house. Jesus said, when two or more are gathered in my name, there I will be also. just like Paul often points out in scripture, a lot of these problems relate to ego. He points this out many times. And today I'm going to point that out yet again. This isn't about church. This isn't about the mission of the church. This is about two things, ego and politics. Paul was talking to the Athenians and today he is speaking directly to us. God is not bound to the work of our hands. He is the sovereign creator, he is the sovereign ruler, and he needs no assistance from mankind. Verse 25, God is a giver. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life, breath, and all things. Far from needing anything from men, the Creator causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, as found in Matthew 5.45. Most importantly, verse 26, God is the controller. 
He made from one man every nation of mankind, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. That statement was to blow the national pride of the Greeks, who scornfully referred to non-Greeks as barbarians. Nonetheless, God controls the affairs and destinies of men and nations. Paul is on a roll here. We are the Greeks. Have we ever stopped to listen to how we refer to other countries than our own? Has our own nationalism, our own political ideology become such an idol that we forget these basic truths that Paul is teaching? Oftentimes, any, anyone who, who criticizes something, the first thing we say is, well, if you don't like it, leave, and so on and so forth. We as Christians cannot forget this basic truth. And this is a basic truth that we must teach to believers and non-believers alike. Verses 27 through 29 addresses God is the revealer. Men should seek God. Okay? He is not far from each one of us. Being then the child of God, we ought to not think that the divine nature is like anything formed by the art of and thought of man. God, by creating, ruling, giving, and controlling all things, has clearly revealed himself and what he has made. Men are truly without an excuse. Romans 1.20 clearly, clearly points that out. We have no reason not to know God. There is no excuse to be like the Athenians, simply walking around in our own ignorance about this unknown God. I want to look at the final part of the passage, verses 30 through 34. Verse 30 reads, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by man whom he ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, we will hear you on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined believing, among them Dionysus, the Arapogate, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. It is in his Final closing argument in the speech to the Athenians, Paul makes a call to repentance. Paul says, look, guys, God has overlooked this for long enough. It is time for all to repent. He has appointed a day and a time for judgment. Paul's method for addressing this postmodern culture we are in ends with a simple, powerful point. Tell them to repent or be judged. In the past, God was patient, but the day is coming when he will judge the world through Jesus Christ. God gave sufficient proof of the truth of his word in the resurrection of his son. He holds all men accountable to that evidence. His grace in the past and his wrath in the future requires repentance in the present. As Paul said elsewhere in the book of Corinthians, now it is acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. That message is not popular today, but then again, it's never been popular. It says that now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, so Paul went out of their midst. That's verses 32 and 33. 
from Athens to LA, from Denver to New York, from Dallas to Miami, from Chicago to Boise, from the first century to the 21st century, and to everywhere in between, repentance may not be popular, but it is a necessary part of the gospel message. If we seek to change our ways from being like the people of Athens, then we must repent of our idolatry and seek the Lord and the Lord alone. Because, friends, we've read the Bible. We know how this thing ends. We can either focus on winning arguments or winning souls. We can either focus on being, as some would say, on the right side of history or on the right side of eternity. Ultimately, the choice is ours. It says in Second Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. God is calling us to repentance, believers and unbelievers alike. We have fallen into a trap of divisiveness and idolatry. We have forgotten our relationship. We have forgotten we are children of Almighty God. We have forgotten where our true citizenship lies. But if we humble ourselves in repentance, if we ask the Lord for forgiveness, and if we are willing to change and turn from our wicked ways, we can transform individually and collectively. We can go from being the people of Athens who know of God but don't know him personally to the Apostle Paul to where we have walked, we talk, and we live in such a way that it is obvious to anyone and everyone that comes in contact with us that Jesus lives in us, that we are a child of the King, and that we know him on a personal and intimate level. Then and only then, when we have a true encounter with Jesus, will our life never be the same again. Until we meet again, God bless.